Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Battlefields Podcast, brought to you by The Epoch Times. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charles Fink, the director of the Battlefields Project and the owner of The Havoc Journal, where we pride ourselves on being the voice of the veteran community. This week, we are bringing you Profiles in Havoc, stories from the men and women serving our nation on the battlefield and the home front. Many thanks to The Epoch Times for their generous and enduring support of America's military and first responders, as well as to our other sponsors, including the Havoc Journal, the Second Mission Foundation, and Veterans Repertory Theater. And now, the host of the Battlefields Podcast and Profiles in Havoc, Christopher Paul Meyer. Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's also the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments, in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea. He has a boatload of master's degrees. He's a PhD candidate. He's the executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and he's also the owner of Havoc Journal. In addition to all this, he was my guest this week on the Weekly Havoc. Now, normally, the Weekly Havoc, like I say every week, it's a roundtable discussion of staff and writers, featuring the staff and writers of the Havoc Journal. And this week it still is. It's just it's a much smaller table. Um, it's just me and Charlie this week for reasons that really are just boring and trivial and related to scheduling stuff. But this week, Charlie sat down with me to talk about what are the three best ways to become a failed state. And we got to it eventually, but we had a great time getting there. We somehow ended up talking about the sound of music a whole lot and the different uh, failed state related lessons that you can learn from that movie and musical. Uh, we talked about the future of Afghanistan and all in all, I think you guys are going to have fun with this episode. It was, a, it was a fun time recording it. I think you guys will have a fun time listening to it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer and this is the Weekly Havoc. Well, what do you think? Did you see that uh, John Schindler piece that I sent you? I did. I, did I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how much or how little we need to dwell on it. I thought it was super interesting. I thought it was a really cool piece. Um, I'm going to put it in the show notes just because I think it's one of those pieces that said a lot of things that I'd kind of been thinking but hadn't really formulated into enough of an idea to write out. Um, but I thought it it sort of dovetailed with with the uh, what we're talking about today with the um, you know three ways to get to a failed state. And I thought it was just interesting. The, um, you know, he's a. Uh, do you know him at all? Do you know who Schindler no. is? Have you ever heard his name? He's he's an interesting dude. He's a. Uh, he was a naval reservist, or I think he still may be a naval reservist, um, a, crypto, a cryptological officer, um, and then he was CI. He was counterintelligence for NSA for ten years. Wow. Um, and then after that, then started teaching at the at. Annapolis or the Naval War College. I kind of forget, but started teaching there and taught there for another 10 years. And then his whole career ended in scandal um, after he texted some dick pics, which is awesome. Oh, oh, uh, so that, yeah, that it seems to happen to the best of us now, but his, but his insight, um, uh, you know, uh, I've, I've enjoyed his articles for a long time. I've learned a lot um, from him. He's, he's one of these counterintelligence guys that one of the few, it seems like that speaks openly about, CI, not tradecraft, but um, 
CI concerns. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he's made it his mission. He had a, a column for a while with the New York uh, Observer where he said it was his mission to try to explain counterintelligence to the layperson. Nice. And is, is, and so you can see a lot of his articles out there. He, um, but anyway, I, I, I talk him up only because I've referenced and probably stolen a lot of ideas from him that he's just put in ways. I'm like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. That sinks in my brain a little bit, but yeah, I just thought it was really interesting about how he kind of was conflating, um, you know, wokeism in, into, uh, a national security concern and what that meant. I thought that was an interesting take. Um, I don't know that was my thought, but, um, yeah, I thought I thought you'd be one person that might appreciate that. Yeah, I did appreciate it, and thanks for sending it to me. It was very interesting. We might see some related Havoc Journal articles on that here shortly. Oh, cool. Cool. Okay, yeah, that'd be awesome. I don't doubt it. I, I saw stuff there, and I was like, oh, yeah, that is a whole avenue you can go down. That's right. Um, so what did you think? I mean, obviously this week we want to talk about you know the three uh, best ways to become a failed state. It's something I've kind of thought about for a long time, you know, uh, because – you know, you travel around to a lot of failed states. You see a lot of these places, right. and you go. Um, I, I think for the average American, you don't have much contact with that. We talk about, like, we might talk about, like, if Mexico is a somewhat fragile state, we might talk about migrants or what have you. But you don't really have a feeling for what that country is actually like. So I've often thought, um, especially with all the worry wording about, hey, is America becoming a failed state, or are we going to lead to civil war and all this stuff. Um, you know, it's one of those cases where how much or how little emphasis do you place on that? Is how, how legitimate are those concerns? The other thing I actually want to start with this, um, cause I think this is a, a good way in for a lot of listeners. What's your takeaway just poetically, just as a, on a human level with failed States, fragile, I guess they're called fragile States now. Um, that that you've been to, like, what do you see? What you know? For some people, it's the smell. For some people, it's how you interact with people, um, or a, a psychology you see in people that live, uh, born and raised in a fragile state. What's your takeaway? What what signals to you that you're in a fragile state in your experience? So it's the lack of infrastructure, lack of legitimacy, and just the destruction. So there have been so many things that I've I've seen either on the movies or in the news or up close and personal. And for me, I remember Black Hawk Down came out, what, mid-90s. And you see the ruin that is in, in Mogadishu and Somalia, trash everywhere, buildings crumbling, infrastructure destroyed. See it in Lebanon. See it in all these places that they're, that are completely lost legitimacy and government and control. And I remember <clears throat> I was I was probably my third tour in Afghanistan. It's the only time I ever flew in a Black Hawk legs out, seats out, low-level nap of the earth. It's one of the scariest things ever. And I remember I remember flying down to, from Balad to Baghdad. And I had my M4 because, you know, I was just going to be blasting the bad guys from, you know, uh, 100 feet or whatever. Right. But it, the reality of it was I was just trying to not to get sucked out of the helicopter. It was, it was a bad flight. But I remember flying over the, kind of the outskirts of Baghdad going into the airport down there and just seeing the destruction, the trash piled up and the factories that were destroyed and the sewage and this green liquid. I don't know what it was, just out in the streets. Oh, wait, thinking, so this, this, was, this was Iraq. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I thought I heard Afghanistan. That might have been my brain fart. 
Um, you know, okay. it's, it's no. true for both. This 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 one was in Iraq, but you okay. see something very similar. I know you've seen it as well in Afghanistan. Yep. Just flying low over and seeing the, the destruction and the lack of control and there's no sanitation and all these other things. And that, to me, is just the the most visible, visible indicator. You get bad smells everywhere. I mean, I served two, two years in the Republic of Korea, and they they use human poop for fertilizer. It smells bad, but North uh, South Korea's got their act together. They're definitely not a failed state. They're, they're up-and-comers. And amazing so, soil. Absolutely. <laughs> From all the fertilizer. Fiber-rich soil, yeah. What's not to like? <laughs> Think about that when you're eating your rice. <laughs> but yeah, it, that was it for me, Chris, was just, just seeing that, the bird's eye view, looking down on it and just seeing the destruction in there and, and the lack of care and lack of infrastructure and lack of control. For me, I think what it was was um, the people. Um, I think trying to establish a bond, some form of communication with them and realizing that the value system would be di- was different and um and I, I don't mean like oh barbarians or something like that i mean your aperture your your focus your um you have to be so tunnel visioned on the next moment because you've been born and raised in an environment where i mean life or death is is a commonplace you know death is a commonplace occurrence um the threats against you are commonplace the uh, threats against your family, and and then sometimes just their general PTSD from bombs dropping or whatever. You, there's not a lot of, in my experience, I, I didn't run into a lot of people who you said, hey, where do you want to be in five years? They would have a good answer to that. They don't future plan because you can't. The success is I got to sleep last night or I got to eat this morning. Um, and it's funny because when I try to establish a bond with somebody over kids you know, it's like, oh, okay, you got kids. I have kids. They go to school. You know, what do you hope for them? And sometimes they could articulate hopes and dreams. But what I what I found is, I mean, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. And I haven't thought of the best way to articulate this, but it's something about a third world ability to speak at right angles to what we say. So we'll say something, and we think. Well, I'm asking you about your kid's future, and the answer comes at a right angle. It's not they don't answer us the way we would expect to be answered, or we would answer each other. Um, it's never a straightforward. Oh, I want them to be a doctor or a lawyer. It's it's well, it's um, and I'm going to do my my a very bad attempt to try to see if I can speak at a right angle to my own question. But from what I remember, it would be something to the effect of, um, well. Um, I, the the schools are very bad. It's like oh okay you know so so do you do you want you know uh, you don't want to say something vapid like you want something better for your kid but you you'd be like um, okay so uh, do you want to get them to a better school or or you know and and um, and it would be uh, so something to the effect of well um, I, I'm not doing a good job. I'm not going to be able to square this circle. I, I I can't remember because it's it's just so foreign to me. But I, do you know what I'm talking about? Am I am I talking out of my ass? I feel like does that does that kind of make sense? The speaking at right angles. Yeah, and you brought up a great point about their concerns, and that's one of the cultural differences and the frustration a lot of American soldiers in particular have dealing with folks in these situations who don't have the security, they don't have guns, they don't have a platoon of soldiers backing them up. They don't have a secure fob. They don't have dinner. They don't have these things. And it's frustrating for, for guys who don't have those experiences because they're going to lie to you. 
they're going to try to steal from you. They're going to tell you what you they think. They're, it's, it's a tough situation to deal with. But you have to empathize and understand at that level, they're just trying to survive. And if we were in that situation, we'd probably do the exact same thing. The leverage, right? Being leveraged. That, that, that to me, would, um, Afghanistan, Somalia, I saw that a lot. It's just leveraged cultures. It's people whose entire future is determined by outsiders. And as a result, yeah, they don't know which way to turn. I don't want to jump totally into making a parallel with the states, with the United States right now. But one thought that did cross my mind um, <laughs> last night, funny story, true story. Uh, my wife forced me to watch The Sound of Music, which I'd never seen before. And uh, I'm assuming that, you know, there shouldn't be any spoiler alerts at this point. The cat's kind of out of the bag on this. But my my uh, my biggest takeaway from it was that change when the Austrians in this idyllic countryside suddenly are looking at people they've known their whole lives and suddenly they're Nazis and there's an ideology behind them. Right. And to me, my takeaway was, boy, that's so many people living in Somalia. That's so many people living in Afghanistan. You'd ask people, you know, who's Al Qaeda? Who's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Haqqani? Who's Taliban? Um, you're not going to get a straight answer because, hey, man, I don't trust anybody. There's, there, I, I, I barely trust you. Um, your only bona fides is that you're clearly an American, and and I can, you know, whatever I associate with America, I can attach to you. But there is, there's no trust in the society. So I can't trust my cousins. I can't. I can barely trust my immediate family because, for all I know, my son or my daughter could have been leveraged in some other way, that lack of control of your own life to that point that you literally can't trust anything and what that does to you psychologically, that to me um, is, is, is a huge trait of these kind of countries. Yeah, they have almost no agency and they know it. That's got to be a very frustrating situation to not be able to influence your future and just try to survive day by day. It's got to be tough. I, I Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. When I was looking at the, uh, so I went Onto did some deep dives onto Wikipedia, and uh, you know, looking at the fragile state index um, in 2020. So, just to give everybody an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about fragile states, um, this was whose list? I think this was the organization, the Fund for Peace. So, the Fund for Peace list of fragile states, and there's a lot of different fragile state indices, but their index listed one to ten. Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, Syria, Democratic Republic of Congo, Central African Republic, Chad, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Zimbabwe. Um, I've been I've spent significant amounts of time in five of those countries. Um, I, uh, which I, I kind of stunned me myself that that was true. I didn't realize those were the top of the food chain as far as failed states go. Um, but, but I think it's important to kind of give people an idea of what we're talking about, that we can always look, it's easy to look back at the fall of Germany and, and their submission to Nazism and talk about those things. But when we talk about fragile states, this is actually what we're talking about. Yeah. And a lot of these fragile states don't have good institutions to fall back on. So that's one of the reasons they become failed states or they're fragile states because their institutions aren't strong enough to survive shocks to the system like getting invaded or being landlocked with bad neighbors or all these other indicators that predict fragile or failed states. 
So yeah, that's that's a lot. Five. I've, I think I've only been to two, and I, I'm fine with that. I, I think uh, I'd like to keep it that way the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think you've. Uh, the, we won't do this as a, a dick measuring contest because I think you beat me in, in just about every category um, outside of that. But I, I, I'm grateful for those experiences, as I'm sure you are. I, there's nothing like it, and the appreciation you get from it, and let's not be said the the chance to to try to help and to, and I think that's something um, I'm not the first person to say this but I think it's important to say the U S Army is the greatest peacekeeping entity that's ever existed right. um, it's brought more peace more stability um, and I will I mean I cheated when I say I went to five of these countries because three of them was on one deployment um, and uh, and it was when we pulled out of there it wasn't my my teams that pulled out, but it was, um, but it was the next iteration of our teams that were the last ones to be in those countries. And when we pulled out, when you look now, Russia has moved in lock, stock and barrel. China has moved in. Um, we, and literally, uh, I, you know, we're talking about three separate ODAs, three separate, um, special forces teams. We're literally the only road. They were just a bump in the road, but because it was the United States, and because of the work they were doing, that was enough to keep a lot of wolves at bay. And when they left, man, just the the rush of bad actors that moved into those areas, and um, and it, you 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 hope you did enough work that could stand the test of time. But it's hard to see that in those cases. That when we pulled out, there's a lot of second and third order effects of bad juju that follows in that wake. That's right, and that's why the the work of those special forces teams and the new security force assistance brigades is so important because we can't be everywhere. It's not our job to police the world. We have interests worldwide, so that's why we're in all these places. But at the end of the day, we're not Team America World Police, no matter how many bad movies with puppets people make about us. But with these security forces assistance teams, the idea is to go in and, and buoy those countries up and then leave so they can take care of their own affairs so we don't have the situation like you just described, Chris, with this power vacuum and all these bad actors who are not good for our country and, oh, by the way, aren't good for the rest of the world run in there and fill the gap. So I think that's an important aspect of these failed states is to help them not become failed in the first place. What do you think about Afghanistan, Charlie? What do, what do you think is going to happen? If I, I know we probably won't pull out at least anytime soon and at least not everybody, but um, – do you think that would be another Cambodia? Do you think that would be Killing Fields Part 2? I, I think there would be people dangling from the barrels of tanks just like the, when the Russians left. I think that's, that's absolutely predictable. I, I think what we have to decide as a nation, and it will be up to the president, of course, commander-in-chief, to decide that, is are the consequences of us pulling out greater than the consequences of staying? And I don't have an answer for that. I haven't studied Afghanistan in a long time. I have my own personal p- opinions of it. But... I don't know what the right answer is, Chris, or what that's going to look like. My sense is that if we were to pull out with, without fixing the situation, not only in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan and, and Iran and everything around it, sure. we leave and the country falls apart again. And then 10, 20 years from now, maybe my daughter or my, both my daughters are over there like you and I were. And I don't want that to happen. So maybe we do stick around. I mean, I don't. was it last year that we didn't lose a single American troop? 
to combat in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, we had the peace deal, which it's kind of a cheat because it's like, well, if you agree with the enemy that you're going to not get in their way and they're free to kill ANA soldiers, right. ANASOC soldiers, Afghan military, and we're not going to stand in their way or, or we're going to help, but from many levels removed, then yeah, it's, it was incredibly safe, you know, it's for an American. Um, but, you know, is that the right answer? That's a good question. And should we stay and, and let the Afghans sort, sort it out or should we leave? We, we kind of, saw how that movie ends with Iraq. Now, Afghanistan is not Iraq, as both you and I know, and I think I've, I've written before about my frustration with people saying, this is the way we did it in Afghanistan, or this is the way we were in Iraq. Well, you're not, these are very different countries, very different wars. But at the same time, maybe it's time for us to, to think about it. We, we Perhaps we shouldn't stay forever if we're not going to get serious about it and really do something to make Afghanistan uh, not so much of a failed state. So since I'm no longer in the military, um, I'll throw some opinions out and you can plead the fifth or uh, laugh at me or critique as you see fit. But my my sense is with Afghanistan. Um, now, look, I, I come at this. My bias is is neoconservatism. I, I own that. I know that was the, the phrase neoconservatism was was kind of thrown out as a pejorative. Um, but I don't see a lot of downside to it. I'm very much in favor of full throttle ahead. I think the John McCain philosophy that he actually said about Iraq, but I think the same philosophy can apply in Afghanistan that who cares if we're there for 100 years if the fighting reduces. Um, we're certainly still in Germany um, following World War II. The difference, it, it, what I hate to see is that we bled for so much land and we are the first country to ever occupy Afghanistan that the Afghans did not rebel against, that did not want to kick out. You're looking at the Taliban and you're looking at foreign entities that want us out of there. But the Afghan people do not. The camp that I was at my, the last stretch of time in Afghanistan, the town outside of the camp, the property values were through the roof to buy, a, a, a I think it was a two-bedroom house outside was about a hundred thousand dollars us wow wow i mean now if that's not if that doesn't confirm the the fact that wow the american presence has been a benefit and has given people peace of mind um to just pull that that rug out from under them i think is grossly unfair and i think the um i think we a lot of times underestimate our rhetoric and how damaging that is to our ally to our allies and we we tend to talk about it when it's the president's rhetoric and that's all well and good and should be but i think it's also as a country, when we poll and we say, hey, look, we're not totally sold on this whole Afghanistan thing, it's the commander-in-chief's job to get us focused on what needs to be there. I don't expect people that have full-time jobs and families to focus on the Afghanistan war to the exclusion of everything else. But it is the commander-in-chief's job that if you're going to put soldiers there, sell the people on why you're putting the soldiers there. Have their buy-in so that they understand why we're there. Because to my to my way of thinking, if we're going to bleed in Marja, if we're going to if the Marines what they did in Kandahar in the southwest and taking over every inch of that country and the amount of manpower and effort that we took to simply cede that back to the Taliban at the drop of a hat in the name of peace or as the Bible says peace peace when there is no peace. Um, it to me is ludicrous. It's a dishonor to everybody that was over there because we got it. 
We did it. We took it all over. Stay there for the love of God. Stay there. Say, hey, we're not leaving because that changes the calculus. That changes the calculus for the Taliban, but it also changes the the calculus for the international actors. So when you look at Afghanistan, its neighbors have always been its enemies and have been its doom. China, Iran, Russia, Pakistan, those are not friendly countries to Tajikistan. Those are generally not friendly countries to Afghanistan. But when we don't give them the, the well, we don't change the math involved and we say, hey, we might be here, you're like Obama did. He surged troops, but in the same speech, he said, but we're going to be out of here in, in three years. Well, you're undercutting your own mission. You're undercutting the effort that you're putting forward. To me, it's, hey, we're going to be here and guess what? We're not leaving. And we will be here until this place is safe. Now you can get investment into the country. Now people have some peace of mind where it's like, okay, the Americans aren't going anywhere. And while it's easy for us as military people to say, well, the Afghans could then take advantage of that and say, well, you take care of all the hard stuff like the fighting. We're just going to make a lot of money and then move to Dubai, which plenty of them do, as you and I both know. But at the same time, who cares? Who cares? If... There weren't there weren't people that were war profiteers in Germany following following the end of World War II or in Japan. The point is you need stability and you need that political commitment from us if there is going to be improvement in these countries. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by these half measures. If you're going to do war, do war. If you're not, don't. But if you're going to do it, you got to go all all the way, and you got to say we will be here until the threat is mitigated. And at this point, I don't know that anyone can answer actually answer what threat has been mitigated since nine eleven in Afghanistan. We've killed a lot of people, but the threat picture is still the same. If we were to pull out tomorrow, all right, I filibustered long enough. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's it's really interesting the comparisons to Japan and Germany and the occupations there are, are good ones. What's interesting to me, though, is Germany and Japan had a really strong national identity before the war, so it was easy to reunite them. And I haven't studied this, but I imagine that most of the Germans and most of the Japanese who wanted to fight had their chance to do it and either got killed or decided they didn't want to do that anymore. Whereas in Afghanistan, as we know, the Durand Line, it was that country, that country never had a chance of being successful in the first place. Just kind of cut it off from India to keep Russia from sharing a border with what was in part of the British Empire and let the Afghans run wild in that country. And that's what they did. And the different tribes still hate each other, as you said. And you got the, you got, but it's basically Pashtunistan instead of Pakistan and, and, and Afghanistan. You got Pashtunistan there in the middle. And I don't know that that will, that will ever be the same. We can stay there as long as we want. I don't know that Afghanistan is going to see itself as its own country in the way that Japan and Germany did. But when you were talking, Chris, you reminded me of an article, one of the very first ones we we ran with Havoc Journal back when Marty was still the owner. And it was called uh, The Poor Game of War. And it goes back to some historical documents uh, for the beginning of the country, talking about why democracies fight and democracies. uh, the, The idea here is that a democracy will only go to war if everybody's involved in it because otherwise it would turn into a poor game 
they would not sell themselves on it if it wasn't worth going to war for because the democracy would say hey this is this is not a good war to do but because of the all volunteer force and because so few people serve in the military in America now and because there are so few casualties the wars don't touch Americans in a way that, that World War II did or, or, or even Korean War or World War One, or any of these other wars and in the article of Poor Game this one of the, the solutions there is that we have a war tax everybody feels it we, that we have a draft so folks like you and I and our children don't end up fighting all the wars we don't have a military class or military caste in our society and we need a formal declaration of war to say no that really this is a war this isn't a police right. action it's not GWAT it's not OCO we need a declaration of war we need a war tax we need a draft to make it real to people otherwise we're just going to continue this poor game and here it's been 20 years yeah, it's funny. I actually woke up at like uh, two in the morning um, last night and thinking about that very same issue about the um, compulsion to support war versus a volunteer force and versus volunteer measures. And I I don't know if you remember, I think it was four or five years ago, I think I wrote a piece for Havoc about this um, dovetailing on an academic's forget the guy's name, but he was a professor and he, he put forth this idea of the Spartan army where it was highly trained, but very small. Um, and then uh, how that could manifest itself. And I, that spurred me to write an article then kind of writing his coattails a little bit, but positing a, a, another option where uh, you then can draft a, vol- a reserve force and just do reserve stuff mandatory, but have a core cadre that is volunteer, that's active, and then is highly trained and all that. Um, and I think in that in the time since I've I'm very against mandatory anything. But what I'm not is, but, uh, but I agree with the sentiment of making everybody pay a price or get involved. And to me, that's the culture. So you probably remember like. 2004, 2005, when the late years, the late Bush years, um, when the country really was starting to push back against the wars and you had so many anti-war protests. And I remember seeing um, Family Guy, I think it was, that had a whole episode about um, basically summing it up like what kind of moron would join the military. Um, And the Simpsons had a a lot of references to like you know, idiots that joined the military. I know John Kerry, when he was running for president, said, um, you know, I want to make sure college education is more accessible so you don't end up in the military in Iraq or something. Um, the demeaning, the cultural demeaning of the military, I think is a big thing. And I'm actually going to update this just from the late Bush years because it was something that rubbed me the wrong way uh, last week, if you don't mind my sharing two little quick uh, examples. Uh, I was talking with a friend, with an acquaintance of mine And he was like, yeah, my son, uh, my younger son isn't doing great in school and my older son's great, but my younger son's not. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And um, he's a New York City guy, uh, works in the financial industry. And he was like, yeah, I'm not sure if he's ready for college and all that. And he's getting close to being that age and he's got to make those decisions. And I said to him, I was like, hey, that's why God invented the Marine Corps. Throw him in there. Have him have him be an O three eleven for infantryman for a few years, and he'll either love it or hate it to the point he will be crystal clear on what he wants to do in life. And 
This is a guy who literally, uh, sorry, I, I buried the lead. The important thing about him, besides being in the financial industry, is that he hosts fundraisers for the Wounded Warrior Program and for a lot of veteran organizations, does great work with them. And when I mentioned that about his son possibly getting the chance to, that maybe he should look into the Marine Corps, he literally was like, it's like, his mother will never let me. I mean, they're married. It's not a separate, you know, child situation, but I'm like, I'm like, you know, you're you're over here raising money for vets and all that, but you would never consider your own child to join. And I won't bore you with the other story because it's almost identical. But it, but it was two cases that that came out to me in the past month where people who have very out you know outwardly approving of the military and thankful and grateful and all that, but they'll be damned if their kids are going to do it, and they see it as a failure if their kids have to go to the military. That to me. More than a draft, more than something um, legislative that's foisted on the country, that to me is the difference, that we change the cultural perception that joining the military is somehow a failure. I went to college right after high school. I am, I was poorer both financially and in life for having done so. I would have been much better served um, if, and I think I, maybe I haven't written about this for Havoc Journal, but I had a very similar experience to what my my friend did, where my senior year of high school, I got in with a Marine recruiter. I was all G'd up. It was around when Black Hawk Down happened, and I remember him going, "The Marines would never let this happen." And I was like, "I don't think that's how it works," but I don't know. I've never been in the military, and uh, but I was all G'd up, and my mom was like, "The hell you're joining the military," and um and I didn't, and I should have. My life would have been, I think there would have been a lot more richness in my life in many ways had I joined early on. And my college experience when I went would have been infinitely better and more productive. Um, so I say all that. Anyway, that's my, my I'll let you react to it because I've gone on a little bit of a tangent. I think that's a great point. And, and too many of the elites in our country don't know what it's like to have someone in the military because that's that's for suckers or that, that's for somebody else. And I can uh, President Biden's obviously uh, an exception because his sons joined the military, but for most of the elite in the country, they don't even know anybody. It's it's an abstract thing. And I remember thinking back to grad school, uh, which I love. We talked about this before. Uh, I love going to grad school, but most of the people that were there had never met anyone in the military before, and it was unfathomable to meet them. It was, they didn't understand I frequently asked it's like hey you're in the army and you got into this school like those things are mutually exclusive like you either go to the army or you go to a school like the one I went to you don't do both so that's that's a big problem what a lot of people don't understand is the military is a ticket to the middle class it's if you if you serve a career in the military that pension is huge the benefits that go with it from the health care to the GI bill I mean I'm getting a doctorate on the GI bill right now and the only thing it costs me is transportation back and forth to temple it's crazy so these guys have a, a ticket to the middle class and everyone thinking that only losers join the army and the the last example that I'll I'll give is when we were in grad school in this town that didn't have any military folks the people that we wanted to rent the house from were all good with it until they found out that I was in the I was in the army, and they were worried that I wouldn't be able to pay. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm I've been in the army almost 20 years, dude. I'm an officer. I, I get I, I can afford your house. So we had to show them a copy of my leave and earning statement, 
Um, and they're like, oh, that's considerably better than we, and, and they, we ended up being friends with them. Uh, they were, they were good landlords and we were good tenants, but it's just reflective of how little the, the people know us and know about us. And I think that's something that you and I can change, Chris. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited you started this podcast so we can help get this word out to the bigger communities. And we're not just talking to vets here. We're talking to anyone who wants to listen in. And I think that's a message that'll resonate. And, and I think it's important that people also understand Serving in the military doesn't, you don't get out and you're just this broken, destroyed individual. I mean, yes, you see things that very few other people do, but it's interesting to me that I don't think, look, I'm not going to speak for everybody and I'm not going to speak for anybody actually, except for myself, but I wouldn't change anything. And I don't know about you, but I don't think you would either if I could speak for you. And I think, I think many guys that have been through a lot wouldn't change it because it makes you who you are. And and I, I would even up the ante on what you said when you say it's a ticket to the middle class. I would say in many cases, it can be a ticket to the upper middle class yeah. um, as well. Um, I know one of my uh, commanders uh, that I had, you know, now certainly he had a very decorated career and he was an officer and uh, like you, a, you know, feel great officer. But he's now, um, you know, a military analyst on on uh, for NBC or ABC or I can't remember what. But it's because you see so much. And one of the things that pained me when these different individuals that I was talking to kind of thought, hey, my child is is not going to fail their way into the military, was do you understand the amount of foreign cultural experience you get through the military? I mean, the places I I, I look back and I'm amazed. I've I've done things I never would have imagined. And there's no other organization on the planet that can facilitate that except the military. The languages you get to learn, the the experiences you get to have, the amount of foreign cultures you get to deal with. Yes, the physical fitness. In some cases, things that have made me – I know my personal health. I'm 45 and I feel great in many respects. Thank you to Army Master Fitness Trainer. I mean, you know, from soup to nuts, there's an awful lot of things the Army teaches you and exposes you to. True, there's a lot of jackassery. There's a lot of, you know, stuff that drives you nuts. Um, There's a price to pay. Well, nothing in life is perfect, but there's an awful lot of advantages to anybody. And you look, and I, I would look even at enlisted guys that have gone on like Marty. Yeah. Who came out of Ranger Bat as a, what an E six I think right and and came out started havoc you know is is doing great and is has a great career. Uh, there, there's a lot of advantages that the military gives you that you just don't get. It turbocharges whatever you want to do in life. I think and I don't think that message gets out enough. It absolutely doesn't. And I'm glad you mentioned Marty and another highly functioning vet. We talk about a lot. We got to get him on the show instead of just talking about. Yeah, him I know, time. I know, I know. <laughs> But it's, it's yeah. waiting for Godot, waiting for Marty. Yeah, yeah. At some point, at some point, we'll get him on. Yeah. Well, the military is one of the few genuine melting pots left in society. So even at the college level, that everyone thinks is a huge melting pot, people self segregate into their little silos. They never talk to each other. Um, they they don't certainly don't live to each other. They don't bond in the way that we do in the military. And that's one of the reasons it's important to have it. Now, I don't think I'm not one of the people that says that thinks everyone should everyone should have to have compulsory service. It's expensive and unnecessary, but it might be good to have some type of service, something along the lines of what Jeremy Crystal proposed with his, with the service year alliance. And uh, it's not necessarily mandatory, but it gives people that, that opportunity to, 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 to get with folks from all over the country and maybe all over the world and put them in a stressful situation and share a little hardship. And they take these 
things back to, to to their small towns or their big cities and they help break organizational silos and help people understand each other and I think that'd be very helpful for our country I I, I love the the thought um, I, I my where my sticking point is is uh, yeah I think anything I think people have to they have to feel it internally I I would love to see a cultural shift and and um, we'll probably not accomplish that in one podcast, but, uh, but I do think, <laughs> I, I think that would definitely be, uh, I, that's what I'd love to see is that, is that people go, crap, where can I learn all these skills, have all these experiences, um, have those oh shit moments that make you really who you are. I mean, I think, and I think it's tough for, you know, I was thinking this, sorry, sound of music apparently had a bigger impact on me than I was willing to admit to my wife. Um, but it's funny cause that was the other thing I thought is when uh, – God, this is so corny. I can't believe I'm even about to say this. But when the Von Trapps had to leave Austria and flee to Switzerland and that sense of like, holy shit, my whole world is literally coming to an end right now. And when you've been in the military, generally speaking, you are either working with people in that situation indigenously or you run into some of those experiences yourself because of some tough spots you find yourself in where it's this gobsmacking, holy shit, this is, this is like I'm, I'm shifting gears and it's just grinding. It's just this loud, obnoxious noise that tells me something is not right in my life right now. Um, those horrific moments that you, when you're going through them, make you question everything. Your life, your values, your religion, your, those things that push you to the absolute nth degree, but that's what makes you, how you survive, how you cope with that is what you draw on the rest of your life. And, and in my experience, it has given me whatever confidence or whatever um, um, desires I have that I want to see executed. It's given me direction. It's given me purpose. It's given me energy. It's given me uh, a methodology for how to deal with things. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I think that's probably true for everybody. I don't know where you find many of those outside of the military. There are things. Law enforcement certainly is, I, I would say, is, is a very similar experience. But outside of the profession of arms, and okay, fire and all that as well, and maybe ER doctor, but outside of some of those things, where else do you find those? Well, you might be laid off. You might have opioids in your family and, and deal be dealing with addiction stuff. You might be a... a, a end of life caregiver for a parent or a sibling or have a special needs child. Those are things that I think also push you to the, to the edge and make you have to do with that. But outside of some of those, you really don't have that. There's, there's not a lot of things, especially in America, in a, in the first world that you, that would push you to that degree. And I think when we're clamoring for depth in this country and we're clamoring for, you know, breaking those walls down and having that integrated multicultural diverse experience um, with real meaning and real uh, impact. I don't know where else you get that outside of the military. Yeah. I definitely think that, that we probably do it best because we, that's what we do. We're very expeditionary. People t- tend to take, tend to stay a long time. Plus we got a lot of resources, but I think there might be some similar things and something like the Peace Corps or AmeriCorps or something like that, they, they get a taste of it. And I, I really appreciate what the folks in the Peace Corps do because I wouldn't want to go to some of these places by myself without a gun. I think it takes a lot of guts. So good job, Peace Corps. And you, you brought up the sound of music. I think there are a lot of great lessons from that. So my, my mom was very musical. So growing up, I, I got dragged to Cats. I saw Sound of Music 
numerous times. And my wife, who we also need to get on the show at some point, Chris, I think, you yeah. know, she's, she's a vet, yeah. JSOC, 2ID, 101st. Um, she's extraordinarily musical. And we went to a big church when we lived in Connecticut when I was going to school. And the church put on a production of Sound of Music, and my wife was actually Maria, and my really? my, my daughters were in it also. It was a it was a it was a great thing, and a funny vignette about that is they the the guy who played the male lead, uh, Mr. Von Trapp, was obviously not me. I, I have no talent whatsoever, and definitely didn't want to be in a play. Uh, they wanted one of my uniforms to for him to wear okay fine you know it's what whatever but i i was much larger than this guy so he, he didn't quite fit in my my mess dress even though i haven't been able to fit in it since i was lieutenant but i did have an iraqi army uniform uh that i'd bought at the bazaar when i was over there and i think it's a captain rank but you you know a lot of the foreign countries they have stars where you know that means something different for us so it looks like it, this it's this iraqi three-star general it's got three stars on it it's a nice blue it's got a little pin with saddam hussein on it it's pretty cool and i was there helping him get set up uh for a rehearsal and gave him the uniform and everything and then i told him that it was an iraqi army officer's uniform and they were like oh my god and it was like it was like an evil thing to have in church so i came back later um, to retrieve it and someone um, one of the women that worked with with my wife i guess had pinned an american flag to the inside of it i still got it still in there I, i've got the, the the uniforms now hanging in the in our war room at the Modern War Institute here at West Point, but oh, the really? flag is wow. is still is still in there. Someone pinning. I guess that took away all the evil from the Iraqi Army officer uniform. I thought it was great. It's better and, than holy water, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but sound of music, going back to that just as a concept, uh, what a great lesson to take away. So you had this very successful Army officer. He's got this family to worry about. He's got this new maybe love interest showing up at his house, to take care of his kids, and all of a sudden the world changes, and is, he's got a decision to make. Does he take what what's probably the easiest route right now and become a Nazi or does he say this is wrong and I'm going to do what I have to do for my family to get him out of the situation of course he chose the latter I think he chose wisely history probably showed that and if I'm not mistaken I think they ended up in America uh, I'm not 100 on that, but what a, the what movie a the movie ends with them going through the Swiss mountains, I think. But right, but maybe I there's a director's cut. I think in cut. real life, I, I think that they they ended oh, up okay. in the U.S. Uh, gotcha. We'll, we'll okay. Probably have to put that in the show notes. I'm not, don't don't call me on that. But yeah, great lesson to take away from that for, from that movie. Yeah, we've gone way far afield. People <laughs> were like, "Man, I really want to know what the three best ways are to become a failed state." And we're like, "Let me tell you about the sound of music." Like you fucking assholes. <laughs> Why can't you guys stay with a plan? Um, listen, uh, I think it all dovetails, though. What do you think, though? Let's talk about the failed state. Right. What, what do you? What, what did you? What were your takeaways for that? So I think the number one thing that when it goes to a failed state is legitimacy of the state. So you can have a highly functional state, you can have good institutions, but when it loses legitimacy in the eyes of the people, then you don't really have a state anymore. You have you have a tyranny that's going to be opposed by other people, and the. The, the state has to have the standard things, monopoly on violence, you have to provide services, etc. And if the state's not doing it, just like you were talking about earlier, Chris, someone else will. And I'm thinking specifically about Hamas in, in this example. So Hamas, I mean, they, they, have, they are the government now. But before they were the government, when they were still feuding with the Palestinian Authority uh, there in, the, in Gaza, they were the ones out there in the street handing out food. They were getting medical care. They were providing all this, all the services. They were doing security. So they were the de facto state. So why did they need the Palestinian Authority? They didn't. So they, they, there was a failed state that took over. I, I mean, I still think of 
Hamas is a failed state, it's a terrorist organization running a swath of territory now. But I think that goes to what we were talking about earlier about the legitimacy of the government. You lose that, you don't have a state anymore. And I think that's a concern for any country, not just ones that are fragile. Also a concern for Bensonhurst. Mafia, yes. Mafia has been running it for years, right? You know, <laughs> John Gotti used to, he was the one that threw the 4th of July, you know, holiday stuff and shot off all the firecrackers. Cause yeah, uh, you know, but it's, it's absolutely a parallel. I mean, the organized crime thing is a very, very much a parallel with a failed state for those neighborhoods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Keep, keep yeah. going. Did you have another one? Well, that was the, that's the big one. Oh, that's the big one. Okay. Yeah. And the, and the services also, you, you got, you got those two are the kind of the, the biggest things for the failed states. Uh, monopoly of violence, legitimacy, and services. And if you control those, then you are the government. And you see that anywhere. You see that in Mexico. Yeah. You see that yeah. in, in, in local governments. You see that in the United States. If someone moves in to a, a crowded city, uh, you got the Black Panthers, you got the Klan, yep. you got all these organizations who have done something similar over the course of our history, Chris. Yeah, it's so it's funny. I what When I started thinking about this, I can't remember when or where or why, but just over the years, I think it's just something that started to you know, kind of poke me mentally over and over and over to go, hey, why is this place different? Why did the course of history go the way it did here and not in other places, like in the United States for the most part? So these are the three I came up with. Your answers um, I love because it's it's indisputable and it, it's, um, I think, absolutely the right answer. Uh, that if it, once you start to lose that that political infrastructure, uh, that's it. You're, you, there's there's very little recourse to it. I kind of kind of got a bit more, I don't know, um, emotional, I guess, with it. Let's say because what came to me was three things, which is why I said the three best ways to become a failed state because that's all I had. Um, so my first was. When you start to hate people for traits that they can't change about themselves, um, that to me is you are speeding on your way to becoming a failed state um, because everything is to me is downriver from that. And I think it's important to, to say for traits that you cannot change, if and this is why uh, and I'm kind of feeding it, I guess, back into the John Schindler piece that we opened up talking about where uh, the danger of wokeness. Because if you start to judge everybody by traits you cannot change about yourself, then you lose any incentive or any ability to persuade. And once you take persuasion off the table, all you've got is a rock to somebody else's head. You can't really do anything else but get violent because I can't convince somebody out of their race or out of their gender or you know what have you. So these, these uh, immovable traits um, – have always in the United States, we've we've worked very hard to try to make those above board that, hey, your race doesn't matter, your religion doesn't matter, your gender doesn't matter. We haven't always succeeded, but that's why they're ideals because you try to live up to them. You don't always achieve them, but that's the goal. The problem that I'm seeing is that when you start to make those, when you start to pull those into play and say, okay, these things actually are going to matter and we are going to judge you based off them, that to me, and I, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of um, Somalia, the uh, the lunacy of the Somali um, of Somali hatreds and Somali clan warfare is is a tough thing to wrap your head around as an American because um, <laughs> there's only one parallel I can think of for an American, and uh, I'm 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 going to use it. Uh, 
in Alabama, I was with a bunch of guys from Alabama on a deployment and they said, uh, and I said, what's the difference between an Alabama and an Auburn fan? Because uh, I know you guys hate each other, but I, I don't get it. What, like, if you had to characterize, if you had to do a caricature of a, of an Auburn fan, w- what's the difference? And they were like, "Well, they like Auburn. Like that. That's it. I'm like, there's no like, there's no stereotype of like, boy, if you're an Auburn fan, you do this. And they had nothing. It's that kind of nonsensical uh, hatred, if you will, is is what you see in the Somali clans. Well, why do, why does Darud Marahan hate Haber Gadir? Because they're Habergadir. Uh, there's not a lot, but it's a trait that somebody can't change, and therefore they are the devil. That's a dangerous way of thinking. So without going on and on and on about that, that's the first one um, that that I that I came up with. The second one was miseducate and mobilize the youth. The dangers of youth. Um, we see it now in the Taliban, as you know, Charlie, I mean, Taliban comes from Talib, student. You know, and they were the students, uh, and 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 of course, even the warlords that were fighting the Taliban were socialists that came that were radicalized into Soviet-style socialism by their university professors. So all the prominent warlords that were fighting the Taliban came from the University of Kabul, where they had been radicalized. Um, Somalia, of course, you see Al Shabab. Al Shabab literally means the youth, and then you could, of course, pull classic examples like the Bolsheviks. Um, you know, and Lenin and everybody that started the Soviet Union were students. You know, they weren't farmers. They weren't. They weren't the proletariat. They were actually the intellectuals. There's something about mobile the ener- people that can weaponize the energy of the youth for their own causes. That is, you are speeding on your way to a failed state because if you can do that, you can upend the government. And that's what we've seen over and over and over again with these kind of examples. And then the last one, and then I'll shut up, uh, fostering resentment over gratitude. The second you get into the business of trafficking and grievances, uh, whether it's the French Revolution, where which certainly I, I think a lot of smart people, and I agree with them, believe is the genesis of so much, so many of the problems in the world started in the French Revolution. And that idea that if you can hatch, if you can latch on to the grievances and exploit them, you can overthrow the government to the point that then even when Robespierre and the reign of terror happens and they've killed all the aristocrats, all the aristos, then they turn around, they behead Robespierre because even he's not revolutionary enough. Um, I think there's a real lesson there. Of course, you see it in Afghanistan, the Tajiks versus the Pashtuns. You see it in South Sudan, the Dinkas against everybody else. You nurse those grievances and you can get political power. It's the best political tool, but it, 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 I think it speeds you on your way to a failed state. I, again, I'm going to shut up and let you talk. Yeah, I think especially that last point, Chris, you, you hit on something really important that a lot of folks inside the United States are worried about. More and more people are not seeing themselves as members of a nation state. They see themselves as a, a sub-state or a tribe or a culture or an ethnicity, take your pick. And that's very fractious. So there's been a push in the last couple of years, the anti-nationalism push. If you're a nationalist, if you if you really strongly believe in your country, you're not a patriot, you're a white supremacist or you're or you know, something something's wrong with you. You're some you got some kind of ism, some kind of ist. And what we've seen in the last couple of years, not only in the United States, but all over the world, is this fracturing of along the political fault lines and these grievances rising up and the tribalization happening. And like you were talking about mobilizing the youth, 
and spreading hate, and that's very dangerous for our country. And it's on it's on both sides. We see people on both sides of the political divide advocating for war and violence against each other, and it's it's not healthy. And Chris, when you were talking about grievances and spreading hate, I went to undergrad at, at a school called Mercer University, and Mercer was in the news recently over something that one of the theology professors wrote. And I was like, oh, great, Mercer's in the news. Uh, the last time I remember Mercer being in the news was when they beat Duke at a NCAA basketball tournament several years ago. I'm very happy about that. But it, it was not in the news for a good reason. The the reason it was in was because this professor at the theology school wrote an article, um, more like a poem for an anthology. It was called the, the Diary of a Weary Black Woman. And one of the first sentences was, God, let me hate white people. And I read that and I was like, okay, I, I've seen this type of thing before. It's a provocative statement to get people's attention. And then they bring it back and it's like, that's not really what the article is about. So I didn't react to that headline. I waited until I could get the full thing and read it and it didn't get better. And I remember reading that as like, this This is terrible, uh, advocating hating white people, and especially said not even, specifically said not the racist, because they're going to hell anyway. Basically, the, the mainstream uh, white people who who are not um, sufficiently on, on the side of, of the author. Sure. And that's very dangerous. And we see that in white nationalists, we see it in, in black separatists, we see it, but now we see it in the mainstream, and that, that causes some worry, Chris. Yeah, it's um I'm I'm tempted to go on a tangent about 1991 New York um and I'm trying to think right now if I can succinctly say anything and I'm not sure I can. I think that's going to be its own thing, but you're right. Um because you can't argue with that piece. There's no pers- if you're determined to hate somebody based off their race, th- then there's there's no persuasion that can happen. I, you can't persuade me out of my race. Um, for that matter, rich people, poor people. Um, you know, I mean, Bernie Sanders has, has had a pretty good run nursing classism and and talking about you know, millionaires and billionaires. Well, what if you're a kid born to a millionaire or billionaire? You didn't have a choice. That's who you were born to. The key is what do you do with it? But it's not that you were born. You know, it's not how you're born. And I mean, it, it's somebody – at some point, I got to start figuring out who says all these things that I keep stealing and saying. Um, but uh, it's it's been said before that sometimes you have to say the obvious things over and over because if you don't, they'll stop being obvious. Yes, and I I, I feel like that's where we are. I feel like my whole life, there's never been a need to defend. Uh, classically liberal ideas that it's been obvious that racism of any race, when you're judging somebody by traits that they cannot change, uh, is wrong. But it's important, apparently, that we go down this rabbit hole and continue to ex- explore and explain why that's wrong to hate people for things that they can't change. And that let's deal with people where they can change their minds. You want to argue about a position, that's, that's one right. thing. But to argue about a race or about a non-changeable trait is a dead end and only can lead to violence ultimately, if not initially, because there's no way you can convince people out of it. That's right. And I couldn't help, Chris, but think about it. If I were back at Mercer, where my wife and I both went to school, if I was an undergrad, and I knew that my professor said this, how would I, how would I be able to go to the classroom? Why would I ever take her class? Why would I even go to that school? Why would I donate as, a, as an alumni when we have professors <clears throat> that are that transparent about it? That's, that's terrible. And this happens all over the country, unfortunately. And at least, at least she's out about it. 
the the people that keep that to themselves that are the closet racist or, or even worse in my opinion well that's right and well it's also i mean let's not brush over the fact that she is saying this at the at a college yeah you know it's it's one thing to have these sentiments and and write them in a poetry anthology that gets published somewhere it's another thing to be a teacher and ostensibly have influence over a student body and i i don't think that gets enough coverage i'm i'm I, I this time I remember who I'm stealing this from, but Jonah Goldberg um, at the Dispatch and uh, formerly of National Review has written eloquently and at length about the dangers of idolizing youth, and uh, that to have someone attempt to manipulate and corrupt a mind um, that has the energy ha- is riven with emotion more than reason is particularly dangerous and insidious. And that's where I, I think if you look at um, when Jonathan Haidt and uh, the guy he co-wrote uh, the his book, uh, was it The the American Mind? I'll put it in the show notes. Anyway, the book that kind of highlighted when wokeism caught on, which was uh, they, they attribute to 2013. But it's those kids coming out of school that have been your, your fifth columnist, essentially, moving the woke – uh, ideology through all the institutions, even, and we don't need to get down this, go down this tangent just now, but even the military. Um, and I, and I, just to kind of recap the dangers of the youth, I think one of the reasons I'm so staunchly against lionizing youth is because everybody's been young. That's not a select group. We've all been there. So literally you are not adding anything to the conversation. You, you are new. Got it. Well, we've been through that and we've learned how dumb we were at that age. It doesn't mean we were 100% wrong, of course. And there's a lot of great things that young people do and, there's, and all that. But you do get wiser. That's not something that tends to deteriorate with age. That you tend to be a lot wiser and a lot more savvy about how the world works and about why things that are tried and true tend to hold up and why new ideas are sometimes just regurgitated old ideas. But you know that when you're older, you don't know that when you're young. And so this lionization that I think is nothing more than a political play to captivate the youth into a certain ideology or under a certain political banner, I think that's particularly damaging. And as I say, it's not overstating the case to look at many failed states that have capitalized on the youth to their detriment. I, rem- I remember, Chris, when I was in Iraq on my first tour, I was with 5th Group, and I was commanding the group in my detachment. We had a detail of soldiers assigned to us who were in the Army's 09 Lima program. And for our, our listeners who don't know what that is, that's uh, for folks with certain skills, linguistic skills, and many soldiers join it in order to speed up their citizenship. So we had two members uh, that were assigned to us in fifth group when I was over there who had been child soldiers in Sudan and had escaped from that, come to the United States and were on their way to citizenship were, 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 great, um, were great soldiers for us when we were over there. And I was thinking about them, Chris, when you were talking about the youth and how organizations like Al-Shabaab mobilize them and use them for, for bad purposes. I recently rewatched a Netflix movie called Beasts of No Nation, mm-hmm. which talks about child soldiers in Africa. It's a, it's a drama, but I thought it was, it was very well done. And thinking about uh, people think that things that happen in other countries can't happen in the United States, and, and they're wrong. Uh, we have strong institutions here. We have our constitution. We have our American identity, but we need to protect those and shore them up. 
and ensure the unity in the country. And right now there's a lot of forces that are trying to pull it apart. So I think that our youth are, are doing okay. As you know, I work with young people very closely in my day job. They, they, they're okay. They need some guidance. Uh, I mean, they're the ones I deal with are, are okay. And I mentioned Chris earlier about how people that went to, to Yale, for example, Never met any of them in the military, but plenty of them do go in. There's a, a friend of mine who participated in the Peace and Dialogue Leadership um, Initiative with us, uh, a joint Yale-West Point thing. He's in OCS right now. He's literally there right now. So he graduated from Yale, enlisted in the Army, went to OCS. So it does happen. Some of, some of the folks that were undergrads when I was in school there are now in the law school. So they're, they've gone on to the Ranger Regiment, and they went to law school. They, they, they do all right. And I think the military does a decent job of helping unify people and help get them pointing in the right direction for the country. And there are other organizations that do it as well. I would like to see more widespread enlistment and folks going to the military in the sense that there's tends to be geographic regions and socioeconomic classes that might contribute more like people think that the uh, the the lower class are the ones that go in the military when it's, it's actually the middle class go in but the middle class doesn't always grow up to run the country and i think what we need is more involvement from people who who grow up to run the country to be involved in the military to have that melting pot experience and to have these experiences in mind and think of us as real people when they make the decision to send our country to war so i think if if i deliver our, our our audience with with just a couple of thoughts chris it would be that the young people are okay they still need our guidance um, institutions are doing okay in the United States. We are still a strong country, but it could change overnight. And we need to make sure that we're all doing our part to keep it together and work hard on it. But who was, was it? Was it Franklin? I don't know. We put this in show notes too. You know, we got a Republic if we can keep it. Yeah. And right now, some of our, our most important underpinnings of the Republic are under attack and we need to make sure that, that we just stay, st- help stick together, Chris. No, and I, I always appreciate notes of positivity, especially when they, kind of allay the doom and gloom that I sometimes, you know, fascinate on. But, um, you, you know, the one thing that, um, that I was just going to throw out there also about youth, um, and for, I'm glad to hear this is may not be as widespread. Uh, and, and that is certainly good news. But one thing that came to my mind was the idea that, Hey, let's do new things in the United States. Um, I've heard that again in passing, and you're much more tied into to kids, especially obviously in the educational system than I am. But I've heard, you know, hey, well, you know, oh gosh, this this uh, this boring American way with your freedom of speech and all that, um, and and you know, it's the Constitution and uh, it's just it's just this old this old way of thinking. And one of the things that age gives you is the perspective to realize that what the United States is doing is actually the most novel, the newest, freshest, most freshly out of the box thinking that has happened in millennia in human history, that what the so-called progressive uh, lines of, of thought are about are actually very regressive. You're talking about I mean, to look at wokeism as something new. It's not new. It's the oldest thing in the world. It's just going back to tribalism and hating somebody else because they don't look like you or think like you. That That's not new. That's incredibly old. 
Western liberal dem, dem, uh, Western liberal democracies and classical liberalism that stem from them is the new kid on the block, and I wish that that was how it was portrayed more often to the youth and to kids coming up. I sound like I'm like the bad guy in Pretty in Pink or something. I keep going the youth. I'm like the bad guy in Breakfast Club or something. One of the John Hughes films. But my my that that's something that I I hope is a message that also gets out because. I, you're absolutely right. It, it's it's a republic if we can keep it, um, and we have to appreciate the fact that this is the newest thing. And if you don't understand that yet, that's okay. You're young. Learn. Learn about why it's new and why this is so novel and groundbreaking. Don't just. It's too easy to automatically just gear shift into your tribal natural brain. And I'll, I'll, I'm sorry. I'll just say one other point on this that I I don't think is made enough. It's unnatural what we do in this country. We need to acknowledge that our Western liberal democracies are completely unnatural. This is not how people were created. And what we have learned through agony and pain and war and disaster after disaster is this is the best practice to keep us all together. So we don't just throw that away. We go, oh, okay, this is actually this is the new, the latest, greatest, newest thing, and we need to treasure that and raise that up and educate ourselves on that rather than just go to our default setting of, got it, you're not like me, you die, and and and, and stop putting that in a new box and pretend that's a new idea. That's right. It's, it's the old quote about uh, the republic is the worst government in the world except for all the others. So yeah, what we do here is it's time consuming and it's frustrating and it's cumbersome. But there's a reason why so many people want to come here and stay here and why so many people don't go to other countries and live there. And Chris, you and I have had a lot of experiences. We're both financially well off. We could live anywhere we want in the world. And I think that there's a reason why people like you and I stay here in America. I think it's the best country in the world. I think it's the best country for my family. If that weren't the case, I'd go live somewhere else. So we got a republic. I want to help keep it. And I'm going to do my part. And I hope our listeners do too. You're on record. Charlie Fate wants to keep the country together, everybody. In case there was any doubt. Listen, this is, um, I mean, we can go around on this. I mean, it's, um, we should really have somebody that totally disagrees with us on so we can have, uh, you know, another aspect to it. Cause, yeah, I mean, we'll, you, you and I are singing off the same sheet of music and I love it because it saves me having to talk to myself in the mirror um, and, and say all this stuff. <laughs> This is a hell of a lot better. Charlie, tell me about Second Mission right now. What's going on with you guys? What have you guys been up to? Oh, yeah. So so we've got uh, the proofs coming in for Aaron Kirk's book, The Hill. We've got some really great author blurbs that I, I'll announce on the show here in a couple of weeks. I'm going to keep Sweet. them under wraps for right now. Okay. Um, so he's he's really excited about the book. I'm really excited about it. He's copy's been delivered to him to the to editor. UPS let me down. I'm still waiting on my copy to show up, so I can't I can't show it to you. I'll send you some gotcha. when we get it. Okay. But we've had several other vets write in w- wanting us to tell their stories, not just on Havoc Journal, but through Second Mission in the books. In fact, I got a Second Mission shirt on right now. It's for the oh, propaganda. Bitchin'. Actually, there we go. Very Make sure cool. to get one for you also. Oh, but, please. Um, not directly related to that, but related to, to the weekly Havoc. Chris uh, Jimmy Gagliano won his election. That's right. You know, we really should have mentioned that last week. We let you down, Jimmy. Yes. Um, what do we need to say about? It? Did you go? Did you go to the inauguration? No, because it looked like it was it was um, limited attendance, and I didn't want to show up crashing Jimmy's 
you know, inauguration, his, his rambunctious military friends showing up Cornwall on Hudson and, and crashing his event. But it looked like it was a, a great thing, and I'm sure he's going to have a big soiree when the circumstances permit, and you and I should go, uh, whether he invites us or not. So, Jimmy, we're coming. His, his first official act as mayor can be to set a good bouncer outside the bar. And, yeah. <laughs> It'd be, it'd be a noteworthy start to his political career. Yeah, no, that's it's huge news for him. And you know, it's it's. I, th- I think sometimes it's uh, to our listeners. You know, it might be like at hey, some small town in New York. Who cares? But you know, it's local government. That's everything. That's you know, that's the politicians that actually affect your life. You know, the federal government. It can impinge on your life occasionally, but but not as much as the locals. The locals are really where that's your school board, that's your property taxes, that's a lot of stuff that happens there um, at that level. And to have somebody of of good character with a just outstanding resume and and a, a amazing life that he's lived. I, by the way, I hate that word amazing. It's one of my I, I, and I hate it when I say it, but in his case, he absolutely warrants it. It's been an amazing life that he's lived, and. Uh, and to have somebody like that in, in local government uh, at that position, I think, is just huge. I think I, awesome. I agree, Chris. And just it's another highly functional vet. And we can look around yeah. and we can point at people feeling sorry for themselves, getting in trouble with the law. Uh, and then for every one of them, you got 10 Jimmy Gaglianos. You got you got all the kind of people out there doing great things in the world. And, and my hat's off to Jimmy and his wife and um, the, every vet that's out there just getting after it every day, every first responder doing stuff for us, every student that's out there trying to make the country better. Uh, my hat's off to all of them. Charlie, you, you're saying all these controversial things. You want to defend the Republic. <laughs> we like people that are out there getting after it in the military and students and all that. But listen, you know, it's true. And, and the good stuff doesn't get enough of a plug. And of course, when I pick a topic like the one we picked this week, um, we're kind of focused more on the downsides than on the upsides. But it's I'm glad you kind of leveled us out and brought all that stuff up. Um, so I'm going to keep bugging you uh, week in, week out about Second Mission, about what's coming out, because you. you've been talking this book up nonstop. I can't wait for it to come out. Um, just the, the the buzz you've been generating just amongst everybody at Havoc Journal with it has been something, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes out. Me too. And once the COVID situation clarifies a little bit, Black Rifle Coffee Company's reached out to a number of veteran organizations and nonprofits, and they're going to put on a writing workshop probably at their, their ranch. Apparently, they have a ranch in New Mexico. That's what you do when you're successful as Black Rifle. So uh, I'm looking forward to that also, Chris. Hope to get you down there uh, as well so we can help get the word out and get get the next generation, the next podcast host coming in behind you, the next owner of a Havoc Journal-like blog coming in behind me to perpetuate and keep that going and and, and start spreading the word that America is okay and that yeah. we're better we're better together than we would be if, if we attack each other like what's been happening in the last several years. And I'm optimistic about the future, but like we said before, and you know because you've been there, you can't take this for granted. You can't yeah. take America for granted. And if we don't fight for America, our vision of America, then somebody else will, and we'll be on that list of failed states. And then who's going to make the sound of music about our story? <laughs> what, what mountains do I escape over? Yeah, it's, it's well, just not going to be fun. If they if they do make one about us, I know where they can get an Iraqi officer uniform jacket for the, <laughs> <laughs> for the production. For the production. There you go. Yeah, it doesn't count unless you can do a show about it. Um, all right. Hey, Charlie, thanks, man. This was great. I got some stuff to talk to you about offline, but um, this was awesome. Uh, you know, obviously stepped up. You know what also occurred to me? We could have done this in person. 
Oh, dude, I so I could have brought I, a. I, a I completely brain farted on that. No, I thought of that the second that you logged on, and I was looking at you. I was like, "Oh crap, we could have done this right here, face to face." Anyway, whatever. Hey, so you but, know what we you know what we do? We we convince Jimmy to let us do the next one in the mayor's office. Oh god, is that sacrilege? Is there, is there <laughs> actually is is that a, is that a, a what in kind contribution of any sort? Do we mm, okay. what, what's what's the political grift that happens after that? I don't know. We'll get them started on all that stuff so we can have some good dirt that. Uh, his opponents can run with the next time, but uh, he's too he's too clean. Um, no, that'd be great, and uh, and we got to have him back on and razz him about becoming mayor now for sure, or bow and scrape in front of him as it may as the case may be. <laughs> All right, Charlie, thank you, everybody. Show notes at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. But of course, you can also find us through Havoc Journal at havocjournal.com. Uh, please check out the show notes, though. We'll have everything on there. Charlie and I have referenced about. 80 different articles, books, quotes, something else that you probably have questions about or want to correct us on. Uh, so in all, by all means, check out the show notes at theweeklyhavoc.podbeam.com. Let us know what you're thinking. Questions, comments, snide remarks, always welcome. Charlie, did you have something? I'm good to go, brother. Thanks for having okay. me on the show. No, my pleasure. Uh, we will also have alibis. Uh, next to the show notes, we'll have alibis for anything we misstated uh, because – I know I wake up at 2 in the morning usually and frequently remember all the things that I jacked up the previous day. So if I have anything, it'll be on the, on the same page with the show notes. Uh, Charlie, thanks a million for being here. Please subscribe. Five-star reviews. You guys all know the script. Uh, as always, I thank our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Charlie Faint. We will see you next time on the Weekly Havoc. I was, so I went to the hospital. I was like, hey, is this COVID? They're like, nah, it's like it's a nasal infection, all that. So we took our R&R. I took my R&R to Iceland, which literally 24 hours being in Iceland, that funk gone, like huh? went away. Like nobody's business because the whole country is geothermal heated. <laughs> it's basically natural healing water everywhere. So I was sitting in a hot tub. I've got a picture of me sitting in a hot tub in the mountains, just like an outdoor hot tub with the mountains around and all that. And I wrestled my kid in that hot tub for like two hours. And at the end of that, like everything was gone. I was a hundred percent.